you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Daniel 5, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to jump over to verses 30 through 31. Daniel 5, 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We ask that the Lord God take the word of God and sanctify it unto our hearts. You may be seated. All right, please join me in a prayer, uh, one more prayer, praying that the Holy Spirit will give us his teaching of his word uh, this day. God, we come before you, grateful that you have seen fit to provide us your word. Lord, and I pray that you will remove the man who stands here with your word, and instead that it is your Holy Spirit that comes out. Lord, may your teaching for us this day be clear. May your word be made clear. May you be glorified in the teaching that you have for us this day. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God cares about who we worship. I think this is pretty obvious. This is a pretty straightforward thing to say. But God cares also how we worship. God cares how we worship. And I'll say this in advance, because as we go to look at some examples, some models, some different approaches by men and the consequences therein, how you worship will show who you worship. How you worship will show who you worship. And as we get into this text, keep that in mind. How you worship will show who you worship. We're going to look at what's going on here. We're going to look at a few or talk about a few different examples throughout Scripture of people who worship improperly and what are the consequences. What is the cost of improper worship? It is not enough just to choose the right thing, the right combination of letters or words to worship. It is how you worship that matters as well. Well, first we need some context for what's going on in these first four verses of Daniel 5, where we dropped off the narrative in Daniel 4. We have Nebuchadnezzar extolling God, and then we have Belshazzar ruling here. And a few th different things are going on, and it would be hard to know if you weren't um, aware of some of the um, 
the history or looking through other passages of Scripture and Kings and Jeremiah and all these other portions of Scripture that give us information, you would go, oh, it says in verse uh, 2 and 3, it talks about calling, bringing in the vessels of the house of God, which his father, Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. But Nebuchadnezzar isn't the biological father of Belshazzar. He's not. In fact, 23 years have passed before, between the end of Daniel 4 and the beginning of Daniel 5. There's been four other rulers between these men, and yet it says your father. And later, when we get a chance to dig in deeper into the wonderful story of the hand appearing on the wall and writing, and we get to hear Daniel's teaching on this, even Daniel as well says, talks about Nebuchadnezzar, your father. But what's going on here when it says your father, this is talking about a predecessor. In the same way, we might say our forefathers, where the Pharisees claim that their father is Abraham. Jesus is the son of David, right? His father, David. It's not, there's a genetic component, sure, genealogical, but what's going on there a lot of times is a call to the predecessor, this idea of authority and relationship. And yet, it's still kind of interesting that we have this scene and we have this death of Belshazzar. The reason we jump to the end is didn't want to leave it hanging. Belshazzar dies for what goes on here. And it's a little unique that he dies, in my opinion, because we have Belshazzar, who actually, of all the rulers, is probably the least significant in Babylon that we've talked about yet. Nebuchadnezzar, here he rules, he's mighty. He makes false gods, he builds idols, and yet, in spite of all of that, God sees fit to allow him to rule for 43 years. With a period of time, seven periods of time, we don't know how long, with a weird interim in there, right, that he's no longer ruling and, until his sanity is given back. And yet, the one who uses materials to make false gods is given 43 years to rule this world. The one who did murder and evil wickedness in Israel to the Judean men, and the one who creates gods and idols is given 43 years to worship, or excuse me, to rule his kingdom. And clearly he has plenty of worship going on that is pagan worship, false worship to the wrong thing. So then we have Belshazzar, right? Okay, Belshazzar is the next in line. No, we're given silence about four of these kings. And even then, Belshazzar's not the only king right now. He's a co-regent. He is the, essentially the vice president. His, his biological father, Nabundius, is the ruler, and he is building these temples. He's building pagan temples throughout the land. He's refurbishing many of them. He's building back up, and he needs someone at the homeland to rule, someone in his, his lineage. And so he has Belshazzar, his son, promoted to co-regent. And so then, why does Belshazzar get special treatment? Why does Belshazzar and his paganism and his pagan worship get called out? And we have a couple of reasons for that. We're going to look at the greater context and then look at the specific context. So when I say greater, not meaning more important, but the bigger picture of what God is doing in his redemptive plan and what he has called to have happen. But we're also going to look at the specifics of these verses and again look at how is worship happening, and what is the significance and the cost of improper worship? What's really cool to me is I can tell you this. 
This event happens on October 11th, 539 BC. Okay, we know the day that this happens because in verse 32, we get the toppling of an empire and in comes Darius the Mede. And Babylonians are tracking down their history. We have multiple histories to confirm this. And so uh, I did my best to go back and look at, do we know the day of the week? There's questions on the calendar and some of those things, but what we do know is there is what is the equivalent um, of October the 11th, 539 BC that this happens. So first, the greater context. Well, the prophet Jeremiah told the Israelites and told the Judeans that God would bring about judgment of Babylon and their wickedness and what they had done and in their t uh, uh, judgment for taking out the vessels of worship and that this judgment would happen after 70 years. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar ruling for 43 years. If you're trying to do the math, what happens is we have Belshazzar, we have four kings over the course of nine years. Belshazzar comes in to rule, and now he rules for a period of time as well. And we're, we're at a total of what is about 66 years at the time in which Darius the Mede comes in and will later, in the fulfillment of the prophecies through Jeremiah, he will, God will strike the final judgment on Babylon, which is the removal from the geographic region of Babylon, God's people, and the redeeming back to himself of Judah. So there's a greater context in that, well, we're given this account because it denotes the end of Babylonian rule and the bringing on of Darius the Mede. And if you remember back sermons at this point, probably seven or eight months ago, we had sermons talking about the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and seeing the different materials and who was going to rule. We had first the Babylonian Empire, and then we had Medes. Okay, we had Med Media Persia. We have Persia ruling. And then after Media Persia, we have Greece, and then after Greece, we have Rome. We have these foretelling. So we know there's elements here, and we're starting to see the fulfillment of this in Media Persia coming in to rule with a Mede, Darius the Mede, being about 62 years old. So there's this greater context going on in terms of what God would bring about. And yet the question still has to be asked, well, why, why are we given this scene? And not only are we given this scene, we all know, we didn't read today, it would be a lot of verses, and I wanted to keep the focus on our text for today, but why do we have this hand appearing in this mysterious scene that seems so significant? Is it that these hands are appearing all the time and we just don't know about it because it's not recorded in scripture? No, we know Belshazzar reacts terrified. This is an unusual thing. And there's a great amount of time between the miraculous events of, of Daniel, and later we'll see that it's, it's actually the king's mother, so in this case, Belshazzar's mother, queen regent, who says, hey, son, a ruler nine years back, Nebuchadnezzar, he had this guy who can help interpret, bring him in. So it's not, it's not that these events seem, there's no context for these events being regular and consistent. Instead, it seems that there is something special and unique going on in these verses that God wants recorded. So let's look, let's look at this and see what's going on, starting with the first three verses of Daniel 5. In verse 1, we have King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Stop there for a moment. We have a lord, we have a leader standing in a prominent place or sitting at a prominent place in front of an audience. 
And this leader in front of the audience, through the feast, it is him. He has welcomed them all into his feast and is standing in prominence. And then in verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, so after participating in wine, he commands that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Okay, we now have someone who's partaking in some wine, goes, you know what's a great idea? Let's take the vessels of worship for Yahweh, let's bring them in. Let's bring them in. And I want to bring them in, and this isn't going to just be me drinking from, uh, you know, a holy grail, a chalice, a goblet. This is going to be me bringing this in so we can commence celebration of this, Whatever celebration's going on here that we'll see, this celebration is for everyone. I want my wives, I want my concubines, even the concubines get in on this. That's, wow, everyone is participating in this. His lords, everybody is participating in this worship, and yet it is being led by Belshazzar. So he calls in for the, for the vessels. And then in verse three, they bring them in, they, bring the gold, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. So then, not only has he tasted wine and gone, you know what, and probably too much wine, he says, come on in, let's bring the vessels in, I want everyone to participate. He then drinks, and along with them, so does everyone else at the leadership of this man. We're not even to verse 4, and I hope you're getting this sense of what I'm saying, which is this is a worship service. It seems like a feast. It's called a feast. It is a feast, and yet it is a worship service. It is a worship service not all that unlike our own. You have a leader in front of an audience calling in, summoning in, let us begin this. Let us celebrate our God and let us worship. And what do they do? They worship through certain special means and special called out things by God to be used for the worship of him and only for the worship of him. And they use it improperly in addition to the wrong person. We have a worship service. And then to cement this idea, we see in verse 4, they drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We have the praising of false idols, praising and worshiping of created things. Created things. If something's created, that already means something's more powerful than it. There has to be a creator. They're not praising the creator. They're using created things, which all created things are made and intended for the worship of God. That is God's purpose for all created things. And yet, they create things. and use it and intend it for the worship of themselves. They worship themselves in what they've created. By worshiping created things, they worship the creator. And now they've done it with things that are the vessels of the house of God. Okay, I don't think I need to to build up the drama and significance of what's going on here. This is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Let's say I changed the words of Daniel, Daniel 5, 4, okay? This is a hypothetical. No excommunication needed yet. I'm not actually changing the words of Scripture, but if we look hypothetically and said they drank wine and praised Yahweh, stop, 
Are we good? No, we're not. Because again, God is the one who tells us how he is to be worshipped. It is for God to decide. It is for the creator of the vessel to decide how the vessels are to be used. It is not the vessel who chooses how to worship its God. So I would say, if you read those first three verses and hear of debauchery and bringing people in and hearing of drunkenness and not sober-mindedness and that then they're using vessels not in the way that God intended the vessels in the location where God intended for the vessels to be used and now you just do it to the Lord and say it's to the Lord, it's okay, you're wrong. I would say that's wrong. And I think we see examples of this throughout Scripture. We're going to look at four, or talk about four in particular. Let's go back. Let's go back to the first time we hear of what um, is really contrast to worship. Cain and Abel. Here we have Abel. Comes in, he brings the firstborn of his flock in Genesis 4. He brings the firstborn and sacrifices it and offers the, of its fat. Well, already... Those details, before getting into Cain, tells us something. The law hasn't been given yet, right? Leviticus, Moses, we haven't had the Ten Commandments. We haven't been taught on that, and yet this has happened. They knew there is a way in which they were to worship God. Now, the means by which God had given Abel to say that you are to give me the firstborn of the flock, and you are to sacrifice of its fat, that we don't know. But we know that God is specific and precise in how he wants to be worshipped. And Abel, what does uh, Abel do? He has regard. God has regard for his offering. And then with Cain, Cain brings the first fruits before God, before Yahweh, it says. First fruits of his harvest, and it's a grain harvest. And yet God says he has no regard for it. He chose the right God to worship to. The who, the verse four, the who was right. The how, God had no regard for then again, in Leviticus 10, we have Nadab and Abihu. I think many of us remember this fight. The priest, the one who's been given the priestly duties, his son, his two sons, they offer unholy fire. They offer strange fire as an incense offering to God. And what does God do? He brings down fire to consume them. But it says they offered it to Yahweh. The verse 4 was right. The who was right. The how was wrong. Again, we have Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Saul is fighting the Philistines, and he's standing there ready for battle. Everyone is eager, and they're waiting for Samuel. Man, Samuel, why aren't you here? Why aren't you here to offer the sacrifice? Saul is showing in Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 13, that he wants to use God as his genie. He wants to get a ritual done so that he can experience what he wants to experience and get out of it what he wants to get out of it. And what does he do in impatience? Because he's seeing that he's starting to have desertions and people who are fleeing and scared in front of the Philistines. He offers a burnt burn offering. He offers a sacrifice to God, to Yahweh. He got the who right. He got the how wrong. He was impatient. It was for his own purposes. His heart was not with God when he did this. It was with himself. He was worshiping himself in improper worship. And what does Samuel tell him when he arrives? 
you, it's clear in scripture you'd never want a prophet to ask you, what have you just done? Because they know. They know. God has already told them and given them the judgment. Just as with Nathan, just as with God asking Adam and Eve, just as with Samuel asking Saul. And Saul tells of his impatience, and Samuel says, well, the cost of this is your kingdom. God would have established you as a kingdom for generations. And instead, what does God say? It's going to be given to another. He will establish his kingdom with another. And praise God that he did. That he did go through David. But it cost Saul a kingdom, not because he worshipped the wrong who. Right? We're given the words. He worshipped, said the right person he's worshipping. But it's the how he worshipped that was wrong. We then see in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, we had the blessing of Pastor Pete preaching to us on this recently. Hey, they sold a property, they get a profit, they take those profits, they go and they tithe it. They give an offering to the church. All good. The church loves Jesus. They're out here commissioned. They're preaching good things. People are getting converted left and right. And in this giving, they lie along the way. How, the how in how they gave was wrong. They lie and sin enters. And it's clear who they worship and they lie twice. The husband first, then the wife, and God kills them. How you worship reveals who you worship. God cares about how he is worshiped. And so certainly in verse 4 of Daniel 5, we see that he is, Belshazzar is worshiping wrong. We know he's worshiping the wrong who. But it's also the how. And for it, it cost him his life. All of Babylon was worshiping the wrong who. The how was wrong, and yet God has seen fit to give this description. And the result is verse 30 in his life. Is the world we live in all that different today? The first vessel of worship I think of, a beautiful sign of God's covenant with Noah, he put his bow in the sky so that every time, every time you water the lawn with the hose, every time you've had a storm, whenever you have any sort of raining, God has said, look, I made a covenant with Noah. I made a covenant with Noah that will last generations. I will not flood this world. What a wonderful and amazing thing. And yet, I imagine, like me, you're out and about, you see a t-shirt on a rainbow, do you go high-fiving? Woo, no way at covenant. High-five. No, we cringe. Even worse, where's the worst place that we see this? If a church has a rainbow on it, a church, the very people who read and testify to the greatness of God and his covenant to Noah, if we see a rainbow there, we run even faster away. The vessels that should bring us to worship our God are being used. And how are they being used? They're being used to worship themselves. And then what is the branding you throw on it? But pride. The very sin that is happening here, which is the lifting up of yourself and the worship of yourself and the lust of the flesh and the things that God has called unholy, you call holy, and you're using a vessel of God's to worship it, to worship yourself. Well, I have everybody comfortable here. There's probably nobody here who's sitting there going, ooh, this is uncomfortable, yeah. Well, let's drill in a little deeper. Let's talk about worship a little deeper. What about the churches of the world? What about the churches in this country, the evangelical church? 
What do we see in the churches in this country? Do we see them worshiping God as he would have them worship him? We see them saying, hmm, the mean God of the Old Testament is done with. We're, we're fans of Jesus. Yeah, we believe in the Bible, but we, we, we avoid the mean God of the Old Testament. We like this loving Jesus. The loving Jesus, he's a fairer. He's a fairer Jesus. He's a fair God. So man or woman, to be in the pulpit, you know, we need, it's a fair and loving Jesus. That's what it's about. Love is love. What a horrible, sickening phrase that is used. Love is God. And yet, God, we have churches who will stand there, places that call themselves places of worship, of the right God. They will say it's the worship of Jesus, and yet they will teach things that are antithetical. They are commanded explicitly against by God. They will use scripture to, to confirm the sins of their heart, to, con to give their conscience good ground to be able to do what they would do. They worship God how they would worship. They bring in secular music. They make worship feel comfortable to the world to the point where you have a feast like Belshazzar in which everyone in the audience sits there comfortable, enjoying it, because the worship is not of God in how they worship. But the question has to be asked, how do you worship? How do you worship? Turn with me to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. And as you turn there, you might be thinking, ooh, I've passed the first two tests. I have zero rainbow flags. I teach my children about Noah. I teach my children about what the rainbow really means. Ooh, number two, ooh, I'm at a church. They do things right. They do things right. They're a church that has males leading up here. They're a church that confesses sins. They're a church that sings hymns and all of those things. And yet, God has something to say for us. Look, look at Colossians thir uh, 3, verses 16 and 17, and see the model for how we are to worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hmm, this sounds a lot like what we do here. We sing psalms. We've, I think today, if I counted it right, we had three different psalms read. We had the gospel, law, and gospel. We had our call to worship, all from the psalms. We sang spiritual songs, some classics, some great ones that we love. We should feel good. We should feel comfortable. We should feel right. And there is good, because this is what it is to, to be. And in verse 17, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In our Pastor Nick's teaching of the gospel, he's taught to us about Jesus and the redemption through Jesus. And our worship and being made right before our God, our Father, because of the work of Jesus. Things should seem and feel right, and yet there's an element, there's a portion in here in the end of verse 16, which I know pricks me to the heart, which it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Where is your heart in worship? God cares about how he is worshipped. 
you might feel that we're doing these things right. You are here, you go through a liturgy that seems right, that what is what God commands us to do. And yet, I'll tell you this, any Pharisee, if I were to go toe-to-toe, will psalm me under the table. I cannot quote, sing, chant, memorize anywhere close to as many psalms as a Pharisee could. They probably know more spiritual songs than I do. And yet, we're told in Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9, Jesus in calls the Pharisees in verse 7 hypocrites. And then in verse 8, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, these, this people, they, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. These are people who do the right thing on the surface. They are following the right liturgy. They're saying, on the surface, they're doing what seems to be taught here in Colossians. They're doing what they should. They're obeying, they know their psalms, and yet God says, even though they say the right things with their lips, their hearts are far from me. And so the question again has to be asked, as you sit here today, how do you worship? Are you worshiping with thankfulness and heart? Is your heart in your worship? Or are you counting on that like the Pharisees, you can honor God with your lips, confessing the things? It's printed in the bulletin. You probably have it memorized by now. We give a confession. Is your heart in the confession? Is your heart with God? Or is your heart distant in your lips? All that is muttering worship. In John 4, 23, we're told at the, uh, Jesus in talking to the Sumerian woman says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so if you're hearing the examples we've gone through, if you're looking at Belshazzar's example and false worship, if you've heard the, the, these four individuals or these four groups of people who have been punished for incorrect worship, and you believe along with me that we are to worship rightly, well then, in John 4, Jesus has taught <laughs> the, the true worshipers, those who worship God, must worship in spirit and truth. And so if we do not, we are failing to worship our God rightly. Before we get into what is the cost of improper worship and back and look at what the consequences were for Belshazzar, for us to worship God rightly is something that is challenging to the core for all of us. There are times in which God feels like he is breathing in my ear, and there are times at which he feels distant. But those are feelings. Those are feelings. God has not changed when I feel good or when I feel poor. God has not changed. And the means by which we can draw to God and worship him in spirit and truth is by prayer. It's offering ourselves up, <coughs> offering our heart Trust me, I would love nothing more than if in a moment of distraction, you, your mind wanders and you realize I'm not worshiping God in heart here, 
I would love nothing more than in your head for you to offer a prayer to God. Lord, help me to hear what you would have me teach. Bless the preaching of his word, this word. We know how to come before God because we're taught it in scripture. Singing spiritual songs, singing psalms, reading God's word, admonishing each other with the wisdom of the Lord. Our heart needs to be here in our worship, not just our lips. Worship in spirit and truth. Well, in looking back at Daniel 5, we're going to look at verse 30 and 31, and we're going to see the cost. The cost, we've talked about it, the cost of inappropriate worship. In verse 30, we're told that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Cost Belshazzar a kingdom. Cost him his life and a kingdom. Cost Saul his kingdom. When Pharaoh tried to restrain worship and said, no, you shall not go out to the wilderness to worship, you can only do that at a certain point. He says, you can only do that as long as you come back and work some more. And it trying to prevent worship, Pharaoh loses a kingdom along with the firstborns of Egypt. The cost is high for inappropriate worship. And yet all these costs, all these costs pale into comparison for the price that was paid, the cost that was paid for us to worship in spirit and truth. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us, do you not know that your body is not your own? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has given you the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple. And he says, you were purchased for a price. Purchased for a price. The great cost that you were purchased so that you could be indwelt with the vessel, which is the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, that price, that cost, is the ultimate cross, which it cross cost, which is the cross, the blood of Jesus. It's too great a cost for us to come and worship God with his Holy Spirit, with his vessels, inappropriately. For those who sit here and say, I am doing the right things, I am showing up, I'm here. My wife nags me to be at church, so I go to church. My husband nags me to be at church, so I go to church. Maybe you haven't said those words out loud, but they're in your heart, they're in your mind. You're just showing up and going through the motions. The Pharisees worship in vain. Their heart is far from God, despite their lips honoring him. So, I encourage us all to come before God in every aspect of worship, from the call to worship, offering, confession, the teaching of God's word. This right now, we worship. Worship in spirit and truth, because the cost is too significant cost for Belshazzar was significant. The cost of the blood of the lamb is too significant. For those of you who sit here who do not believe in Christ, who come in and worship in vain, you will be denied the kingdom. It will cost you a kingdom. You will not be able to enter. The Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. But for those of us who God has redeemed to himself because we believe in God and we know what Christ has done and we believe it in our hearts not just knowing, not just saying the words but we believe in our hearts what God has done for us we get the opportunity to do the greatest most meaningful thing on the planet every week here now worship is not restricted to this time and this day 
worship throughout the week. And yet there is something special about this worship that we get to participate in. When the most quantity of the temple, the most quantity of the vessels are in one place, when we get to worship together, and we owe it to our God to worship in spirit and truth, and this is what we get to look forward to. This is the magic, the beauty, the wonder that is what God has done and what he's secured for us in how we get to worship. When we sing those songs, they should be more passionate than ever. When we pray those prayers, they should be more heartfelt than ever. When we read these scriptures, they should be cutting us to the heart more than ever. Because unlike Belshazzar and his retinue, we know the truth, We've been given the truth, and we've been given the one who interprets and gives us the truth. Please pray with me and pray a prayer of worship in spirit and truth. Lord God, you have seen fit to allow us to come before you in worship. You have given us the opportunity to come and worship. One day in seven, you have given us special worship. And as we've seen today, Belshazzar and his crew have a worship service to themselves, Lord. And yet, your judgment comes quickly, but not the ultimate judgment, Lord. They wait for that still. Lord, you have given us hope that we can avoid this judgment, that we can avoid the folly of Belshazzar and his inappropriate worship, and instead that we can go to you as you command us to worship, Lord. It is not us and a tree and our Bible. It is not nature. It is not those things, though those things were made to worship you. Instead, it is us gathering together and putting our heart in our worship of you in spirit and truth, Lord. Please help us all to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.